Hello and welcome back to Control-Alt-Delete. This is episode 40. I can't believe I've done 40 episodes now. That is crazy. Um, And this 40th episode is actually so exciting. This is a live recorded episode with Laura Bates, the founder of the Everyday Sexism Project and the author of Everyday Sexism and Girl Up. So this year I was actually a guest curator at Cheltenham Literature Festival, which is such an honour and such an interesting and fun weekend. And I ended the weekend on a Sunday evening at an amazing venue, which was the Cheltenham Ladies College Parabola Arts Centre. I think I said that right. And um, yeah, it was just such an interesting discussion. I'm not going to rabbit on too much because I'm just going to start playing it. I introduced Laura properly um, during the event. And yeah, we talk about Laura's amazing new book, Girl Up. It's a great, fun, illustrated, but very serious guidebook, really, for the 21st century girl. And talks about social media, body image, careers, sex, you name it. Uh, all the stuff I'm interested in. So, loved it. Hope you love it. And here it is. Hi everyone, this is such a lovely venue. We're very happy to be here. And this is a very exciting thing for me as well. Laura Bates, everyone. Um, (laughs) So Laura is a writer. I'm sure you all know Laura because you're here and she's amazing. Um, But she founded the Everyday Sexism Project back in 2012 now. And um, the website um, shared women's stories of sexism. And unfortunately, they were happening every day. And the site has now reached 120,000 entries since it launched. Um, So... A lot of stories were shared on that platform. And the book, Everyday Sexism, came out in 2014. And Laura is number nine on the BBC Woman's Hour Power List, which came out in 2014. Such an amazing achievement. And she won the Cosmopolitan's Ultimate Women of the Year. Her new book, which we're going to talk about, which is right here with the amazing neon cover, is called Girl Up. And this came out this year, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah, which um, is for sale at Waterstones. And um, Laura's going to be signing copies after this talk. Um, I just wanted to introduce slightly, um, this conversation is going to be recorded. I have a book out at the moment called Control, Alt, Delete, How I Grew Up Online. And I have a podcast, which this is going to go on. So if anyone asks a question at the end, you might be, well, you will be on a podcast. So um, I hope you're okay with that. Right, let's get into it. I have so many questions. So after the huge success of your first book, I just wanted to ask, was there a light bulb moment for this second book? How was the process with kind of being like, right, I'm going to do book two? Um, there was definitely a light bulb moment. I don't think I would necessarily have set out to write another book at all if I hadn't felt like I really needed to. Um, and I think f- what happened really was that after Everyday Sexism became better known than I ever kind of imagined it would be because of that influx of stories and entries, what started out as an online awareness-raising project suddenly had the opportunity to go offline and what was brilliant was that people from specific areas were reaching out. So we were suddenly able to use maybe 500 of the entries that had come from women in the workplace to go and have a conversation with a cabinet minister who wanted to look at ways to tackle the gender pay gap. And we could put in front of them the real experiences that women all over the country were having on a daily basis that perhaps wouldn't otherwise have trickled into the Whitehall consciousness. Or we were able to take about 2,000 of our entries that had just come from people 
people on buses and tube trains to work with the British Transport Police who were looking at how to tackle sexual offences on public transport. And along with other women's organisations, we were able to use those direct testimonies to retrain those officers to understand why people didn't report, that they didn't think they'd be believed, that they didn't know who to go to, that they had reported and hadn't been listened to, that they didn't realise that being groped or rubbed up against or having someone masturbate in front of them was a sexual offence because it was so normal. That kind of concrete, mm. real-world stuff, which was really exciting. And one of the other areas we were able to do that was to start taking the stories that came from young people, which were shocking and graphic and worse than I ever anticipated, and going into schools and universities and having conversations. And when I started doing that, I was going to maybe two schools a week, up and down the country, all different types of schools, all over the place. And it was a mass eye-opener. It was a huge shock, to be honest. Recognizing the reality of what young people were facing at all angles bombarding them from the hypersexualization of women in the media and the uh, body image pressure that was coming from that the online world of the online porn and its impact mobile devices sexting sexual pressure but at the same time this weird sense outside that world well girls today have never had it so good and they're outperforming boys at school and they can be anything they want to be and it felt like almost this hidden underworld. And it was just so shocking. So I would go into schools and I would regularly hear from girls who would say things like, um, I'm 13 years old and I'm so scared to have sex, I cry nearly every night because a boy showed me a video on a mobile phone at school. And I didn't realize that when you have sex, the woman has to be hurting and crying. And now I know that's what will happen to me. Mm. And it sounds like such a shocking and kind of outlandish example. But then you go into a school where they've had a rape case involving a 14-year-old boy. And a teacher has said to him, why didn't you stop when she was crying? And he's looked straight back at her and said, because it's normal for girls to cry during sex. And you genuinely start to realize there is this massive sense of confusion and lack of understanding. You're meeting teenagers who are experiencing things that are rape or sexual assault under UK law who would never use those words to describe them because it's been normalized. They've been told, if he's your boyfriend, he can't rape you. You have to have sex with your boyfriend. A rapist is a stranger in a dark alleyway. And anyway, that's only something that happens to girls because they're asking for it. These, these massive myths. And then no kind of... Um, support to deal with it. No information, no knowledge about their rights, no knowledge about their bodies, such huge confusion. And even if they did sometimes get support from often really well-meaning adults, it would come in the form of, well, you should be wearing a longer skirt or you should be turning off your mobile phone. Just don't reply to him or just say no if he wants a picture of your breast. Or why do you need a Tumblr account? Don't be on Snapchat. And the advice just wasn't fit for purpose. And that's what made me feel like I had to write this book, partly because I wanted it to be a window into that world for all of the adults who were coming along to everyday sexism events and saying, I don't understand, I don't know what to tell my daughter, what's she going through? But also for those young people who were just being told, deal with this world, you're either a slag or a prude, there's no way through the middle, uh, turn off your mobile phone, that there wasn't any kind of... I guess, lifeline, and I wanted to throw them a lifeline. Yeah, because this book is very much of now. Like You couldn't have written this even three or four years ago because the digital no. world has moved on so quickly. And the part of the book I thought was fascinating was um, the sex education mm -hmm. and going into detail around um, not only sex, but um, in the context of this new, you know, social media and having about 10 different platforms at your fingertips. Yeah. Um, how outdated is sex education? 
Well, it is so outdated that the last guidelines were updated in 2000. So it literally predates almost all of this technology. There's nothing in it about the internet. And that, of course, is for schools that do choose to use those guidelines. And at the moment, there's nothing incumbent on them to do so. So there's no um, mandatory requirement on the curriculum for kids in this country to learn anything apart from the bio biological structures of sex. That's it biological basics by age 15. So anything about healthy relationships, online porn, gender stereotypes, sexual consent, your basic rights to your own body, none of that's covered unless a school chooses to cover it. And we know there was a massive survey of thousands and thousands of young people that was done by the UK Youth Parliament. They found that 40% said their SRE, sex and relationships education, was poor or very poor, and 43% said they just didn't receive any at all. And then there was another more even more up-to-date study this year that found 75% never learned or knew anything about consent. 95% never heard a thing about LGBT rights and relationships. And so there's this massive confusion, and there are some schools and teachers doing brilliant work, but you genuinely, you go into schools. I went to one school where I said, did you have any sex and relationships education? And they went, yeah, we had a video. And there was clearly something going on there, so I said, tell me more. <laughs> well, we think it was from the 80s. I was like, okay. <gasps> and then they all went really quiet, and they were kind of looking at each other quite shiftily, and one of them eventually came out with it and said, we were just wondering, at the end of the video there was a boy, and he said that sometimes women get raped, and that's how you get lesbians. And then there was just this massive pause, and then someone went, is that true? And that was, that was it, that was what they'd had. And then I was, in, uh, I was in Dublin recently, and I heard from a mother whose kid was at a school where, in 2016, this year, her daughter's sex ed class had been the girls being given pieces of sellotape and told to go and stick them on a boy's jumper in the class and peel it off and then go and stick it on another boy's jumper and peel it off and so on. And the boy's jumpers were this kind of fluffy school uniform. So by the time you got to about the third or fourth boy, it would lose its stick and fall on the floor. And the lesson they were taught was this sellotape represents women's value. If you sleep with too many boys, you're, you're ruined, you're worthless. And that's, I mean, you know, that's when the boys don't get sent out of the room to play football while the girls are taught about keeping their knees together. I mean, it is, it's archaic, some of what's being taught to girls today. That's crazy, because I guess, um, you know, what, how do you feel about this, this um, idea that we need to keep kids safe? Because if you think about what safe means, it kind of means uh, not talking about it and mm -hmm. just kind of ignoring it. And, and, you know, your book, um, did you say, was banned in a few schools because there's, there's drawings of vaginas in it. Mm -hmm. But you're saying that kids are seeing hardcore porn on their phones. So how is hiding some drawings, you know, <laughs> how, are we, how are we keeping people safe by not talking about it? It's, it's just not true. Well, I think when people use the word safe in that context, what they mean is, is ignorant or uninformed. And I think that there's a well-meaningness behind it, but also a lack of understanding. So it comes up again and again, this idea, don't give them ideas. You know, don't tell them about sex. Don't expose them to this stuff. I don't want my child to have to deal with it. And it's, that's an understandable urge. But you also get a Conservative MB standing up in the House of Commons saying we can't have sex education because teen pregnancy rates will rock it. There really is this idea. There's something dark and dangerous about sex. Don't tell them about it. Don't let them know about vaginas or vulvas. Keep that taboo and stigmatized and silent, which is so disempowering, of course. 
But also, it's completely false when the reality, sadly, we know, we know from an ICM poll for the BBC that 25% of young people are 12 or younger when they first see online porn. We know that 60%, so the majority, have seen it by age 14. And we also know that contrary to the idea, I think, that there is amongst some perhaps sort of Whitehall politicians, dare I say it, that when we talk about what kids are seeing, it means, you know, a Playboy centerfold, but online. Actually, the reality of what they're seeing in that online porn is confusing and misogynistic and aggressive. It often shows women being, being hurt, being humiliated, being degraded. Um, it focuses very much often on very, very young girls, young women. Um, it's often incredibly racist in its description and its portrayals. And then young people are confused because they see that. And if they take from that a lesson about this is what sex is and what gender roles are, you can understand why it starts to have a really massive impact. And then there's this gulf where we have the opportunity to offset that with healthy, age-appropriate information. And at the moment, it's just that there's nothing there. Yeah. I mean, I, I did notice, because I love how much the book does touch on social media, and um, yeah. it's, it's just, you know, really needed. I wondered about your personal relationship with social media, because obviously you have Everyday Sexism, Twitter, which your team run. I, th I have a really complicated relationship with it, as I think probably most of us do, particularly women and girls, particularly young women, because on the one hand, it's this incredible support system and activist network and it enables you to get people talking about issues it, it it's a, an incredible tool of solidarity a woman from peru can send us a tweet that someone has just groped her in the street or, or shouted at her from a van and within moments there will be women from india and from poland and from germany who've seen that tweet and are responding checking if she's okay supporting her sharing stories of their own asking if she's somewhere safe offering support so i think in many ways, it's incredible and it helps you to feel connected and part of this international sort of movement. And then on the other hand, you know, sometimes I can get 200 rape threats and death threats in a single day and you just want to crawl away and never look at it again. Mm. And I think that there's a real risk of that happening. I think, you know, particularly if you're not a privileged white middle-class woman whose story gets attention in the papers when this happens, which then attracts the attention of social media companies who perhaps take those isolated cases seriously. Yeah. If you're an unknown teenage girl and you venture out to put a political opinion on a Facebook thread and someone says they're going to rape you, you're not going to fight on through that. Why would you? you know, you're probably just going to switch off or you won't comment again in the future. If you're a woman of colour experiencing racist and sexist abuse on Twitter and not receiving that same outpouring of support, it's a really different thing. Yeah, and I think sometimes we're kind of conditioned to kind of shrug it off. I know that um, uh, when I had um, a threat to do with, um, you know, someone was threatening basically to like blow up the building because um, mm. they disagreed with an article I'd written. Oh. And um, I was thinking, oh, it's, should I report this? But then I kind of thought, oh, it's probably just someone in their bedroom joking. And I tried to brush it off, but actually... The point is, it's really serious. And I wanted to ask, um, do you think we need like an internet police? <laughs> is, that, is that something that we need? Is that something that could exist? Well, I think that what's, what we kind of need is an internet system that actually takes this seriously and deals with it. 
and a police force that takes it seriously and deals with it. Because someone making a bomb threat, someone saying that they'll kill you or rape you, things that are happening to women on a daily basis are already illegal under existing laws. And we have an existing police force, including an e-crimes unit, and at the moment it's completely unfit for it. It's not able to keep up with the volume of what's happening. It isn't being taken seriously. People who are committing crimes explicitly, not disagreeing with women online or being a bit sexist online, but explicitly breaking the law by threatening to rape and kill people, at the moment there's completely complete impunity. So I think partly the justice system has to catch up with that, whether that means an expansion of the e-crimes unit, whether it means better training for other police forces. But I also think that we have to be able to demand that social media networks who want to use women as their customers and make a profit from them actually put their money where their mouth is and protect them and take this stuff seriously because they are very, very quick to take down a breastfeeding photograph or a picture of a mastectomy survivor, but people can spend weeks reporting incredibly abusive, really, really nasty comment and being told this doesn't contravene our guidelines. Yeah. Or someone like Leslie Jones can experience hours and hours of the most extreme, aggressive, misogynistic and racist abuse. And Twitter does nothing except expecting her to go through the normal thing of spending hours reporting each individual user when clearly there is more that could be done. Yeah, so it's almost like this is one big problem. It's not um, internet versus real life. It's, it's right. let's start at the very beginning, yeah. crack down on it, and make sure that everyone's being educated to not, not do that. Yeah, and I think we don't need to see it. Like you said, they're connected. We don't need to see these as two completely distinct problems. In the same way that when we talk about something like sexting, which is such a massive issue for young people at the moment, it's not necessarily about this is a completely new and distinct separate problem that needs dealing with. It's actually all rooted in the same stuff around prevention of harassment and violence against women, education about consent and respect and healthy relationships that we could then see manifesting itself online if it were being put in place in the first place, which it currently isn't. Yeah, because we all know that, you know, if someone flashed at you in the street, we'd know that's illegal, whereas I don't think a lot of people do know it's illegal to, for example, sext under the age of 18. Right, I think most of the young people I work with would be really, really shocked to know that even if it's a picture of yourself, it, it's an, classed as an indecent image of a child and that's illegal. Yeah, and what responsibility do you think the media has to, you know, um, project all different stories? Because I think sometimes, you know, for example, social media is positive in a way that we hear lots of people's stories, like everyday yeah. sexism, for example, global accounts of something happening, but then we don't see that represented in mainstream media still. Mm. Do you think that's something that teenagers are starting to get a bit more smart about? I'd like to think that it's something that we're starting to make a dent in, partly because of social media again and that democratisation which is allowing for a kind of body positive movement, it's allowing for body positive tumblers and, and bloggers to start to showcase uh, alternatives in a way that we're shocked. Mm. We're not used to seeing women's actual bodies, which is a very odd thing to say when you think that we see thousands of women's bodies, probably hundreds a day, on the side of a bus on the way past, on your way here, on a billboard, leafy through a magazine, on an advert on the tube, uh, on the side of the sandwich packet in boots, advertising a completely unrelated product on the TV. We're, we see thousands of women's bodies, but we're really just seeing one woman's body a thousand times. And it's the same body. It's the same yeah. thin, white, young, large-breasted, long-legged, long-haired, made-up body. 
And then when something comes along where for some reason thrust into the public eye is somebody whose body isn't necessarily what we're used to seeing, you have this shocking realisation we don't know anything about women's bodies. And for me, the best example of this was after Kate Middleton gave birth for the first time. And when she came out of the hospital and they were standing on those steps, Twitter went crazy with people asking, why is Kate still fat? What is going on? Like, it was genuine. People were shocked. There was a Sky News reporter live on air who went and found a midwife and asked her, what is happening? <laughs> is the baby still in there? Is there another baby? <laughs> like, well, what is going on? Because we are so... We stigmatise that aspect, various aspects of women's bodies, to such an extent that nobody knew that after you've immediately given birth, you don't suddenly just lose mm. your bump. Well, there was... Because I, I remember that, and there was two sides of it. One side was what's going on but then yeah. I remember reading loads of tweets from other women being like well done Kate like mm. you you know you're out talking to cameras like yeah. hours after you've given birth that, and, that is applauded and in a way the idea that that's brave is so sad in the same way that we make this huge kind of massive applause every time someone does a no makeup selfie and you just think where are we that that the idea of of this being a human being as yeah. you are, is seen as this immensely brave and revolutionary act. And I don't mean to criticise people who do, because sadly we live in a society where it kind of is, but what does that say about mm. us? And also, you know, the, brave, the bravery of kind of being like a size 14 woman posting a photo, like that is the actual definition of average. Right. That's not pioneering. Exactly. That's what we, like, you know, that's, that's literally the, the average of exactly. what we are. Exactly, and you so. get that horrible kind of concern-trolling sympathy sort of, yay, her, women's magazine front page. Brave. It's like, you know, brave such and such, steps out, proud of her curves, as if it's something to be ashamed of. Like, the, the underneath, the implication underneath is just horrible. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's interesting what you talk about in the book about the, the power of language, because mm. in your introduction, you really do make sure you're including everyone, and you, you mark that out very clearly. This is yes. for everyone. And obviously, girl up is kind of a play on for man up and, yeah. you know, things like running like a girl or you're crying like a girl. How important is it to, you know, teach um, and educate around making sure that we're being politically correct, but also just making sure that we're saying things that aren't offensive? I think it's important because it's a really good way in to open people's eyes to the normalisation, the wallpaper effect, I like to call it, the things that happen so often all around us that are so much a part of life as we know it that we don't even stop and think about them. And I think that language is a really, really good way to disrupt that because one of the things we look at with language in the book is all the different words for penis and all the different words for vagina. And you start to realise that a lot of the words for penis are these kind of very strong, powerful, proud words. And they're also often quite violent, quite angry. And and a lot of the words for vagina are either very passive or they're directly derived from the ones for penis. So it's like a sword and a sheath. It's, it's very much a secondary, this is a receptacle for that rather than something in its own right. Or they're, they're horribly wounded, axe wound, gash, if you think about it. That kind of language that young people might well be hearing and using a lot is something that perhaps they might not even have stopped to question. In the same way that when you hear, you know, a woman being described as a bitch 18 times in a song that happens to be on the radio on your way to school, that just trickles in. You don't stop and analyse it and think about it. But it was also important to me in terms of the language around relationships and, and gender identity, and that's what I address at the beginning of the book, because I don't think it should be as revolutionary as it is. And 
for me, part of the reason I'd written the book was because I was in schools listening to young people. And what was coming out so loudly and plaintively from young people was this sense from young people who didn't identify as straight or cisgender, who were perhaps non-binary or LGBT young people saying, I'm not there. I'm just not in the picture. I'm not even in, in the narrative that, that we're hearing if we do hear about this stuff. They felt completely erased and invisible. And for many of them, that made them question themselves, um, feel kind of real self-hatred and self-doubt, and feel like they didn't have a place anywhere in society. And I wanted the book to address that. I wanted it to be something that could be useful for young people, you know, to learn about genitals and, and to learn about vaginas and vulvas without necessarily having having it assumed that that mm. was what defined your sex. Yeah, in lots of different your contexts. Your gender, yeah. Or to learn about relationships and healthy relationships in a way that didn't assume that your relationship would always be one between a man and a woman, that kind of thing. From your work in schools, because obviously you've had so many conversations with um, teenagers and um, young people, are you, um, in, are you inspired by this kind of new generation? Because from what it seems, um, there's so many more activists and so many mm. more kind of people, young people not afraid to speak up and not afraid to challenge the status quo. Do you think you know that's a side effect of social media maybe are you seeing that coming through is it quite exciting in that way yeah definitely I think so I saw a statistic the other day that there's been 200 new feminist societies set up at schools and universities in the UK in the that's last amazing. couple of years and you really see that at schools and it, it's slow it takes time sometimes I'll go back to a school year on year and really see the difference like the first year I went to this one particular school actually I walked out on stage and all the boys in the school started wolf whistling at the same time They'd obviously planned it in advance. There was this massive resistance to any talking about gender equality at all. And the girls were very, very, very quiet and they didn't feel able to speak up. But a couple of them came up to me at the end and just asked about starting a feminist society. And they started this feminist society, bless them, and no one turned up. It was just the two of them in a room and a cake. Um, <laughs> and then over the weeks and the months, a few people became curious and kind of sidled along for some cake and then stayed to listen. And I went back the next year, and it was a little band of them, maybe only like nine or ten of them, but they had that confidence, and they spoke up quite a bit more in the Q&A because they felt that they weren't alone. And I've been going back to the school every year, and the third year I went back, the whole atmosphere was different, and it really does feel like there is that, it has an impact. And young women are amazing. I mean, the book is full of these examples because I wanted to share them with, with other girls and young women, the things that they're doing and coming up with, and it might be a big thing, it might be a big protest. Girls at one school where um, they'd been told that they weren't allowed to wear leggings because it was distracting to the boys. And they all turned up the next day with these placards that said, are my leggings lowering your test scores? Which is just so great. There was another school where um, it was a girls' school and a boys' school and they kind of came together for certain events. And the girls had been monitoring. They, the girls had asked for this talk and the boys had to attend. And the girls very cleverly had been monitoring the boys' Twitter feed and had seen a lot of chat about kind of disrupting the talk and being difficult and kind of, you know, why should we have to go to this? This is rubbish. We're going to be make, make trouble. So the girls asked to be let out of lessons five minutes early before the talk. They came to the auditorium and they spaced themselves out in every other seat so that when the boys arrived, they had to sit completely dispersed among the girls and they were absolutely good as gold because they were kind of... And that was, you know, little like practical things like that. But also just amazing stories like the girl who was the only one in her physics class and the boys kept taunting her saying you're rubbish at science um, you, the reason you're the only girl in the class is because girls are rubbish at science and she went back in one day and said actually 
um, 10 people isn't big enough to be a statistically significant sample. So some scientists <laughs> you are. And that sense of, that sense of realizing that other people are standing up to stuff, I started to see was so powerful. I heard from one teacher who said that the girls in her class, when they raised their hand to answer a question, the boys would shout, get back in the kitchen, make me a sandwich. And she said, this is a really common thing to hear over and over again. And she said she just watched the girls shrink, get smaller, stop putting their hand up in class, being less vocal. And one day she gave out some essays that she'd marked and she asked the kids in her class to write on them the mark they thought they deserved to have got. And she said absolutely without, without any fail, all the boys marked themselves up and all the girls marked themselves down. Mm. And so she took them and she showed them some sexism stuff online. She showed them everyday sexism on Tumblr and she showed them some feminist blogs from other girls of their age who were speaking up about this stuff. And she said it was literally like watching a light bulb go on, that they had this moment of just almost, you don't have to, it's not normal. You don't have to accept it. It's not the way it should be. And the next time one of the boys told a girl to get back in the kitchen, they all stood up together and sort of gathered around his desk and explained why it wasn't okay. And it completely changed the atmosphere. And you definitely see that knock-on impact that when there's a sense of other people standing up, a sense of other options and alternative ways through it, it makes a big difference to their confidence. Yeah, it's like a domino effect of kind exactly, of, you exactly. know, if you're not alone and you can see someone, even one other person standing up and doing it, you kind of have exactly. that, that confidence. I know that you've had a massive outpouring of, um, you know, teens reading the book and young mm -hmm. women reading the book and girls in their 20s who, who are still learning about um, how to deal with this stuff. Um, what about parents? Because I know that you sometimes, when you go into schools, the parents are kind of there. Are they, are they slightly out of kind of the room or are they in the room and have you heard anything from parents in response to the book? Yes, definitely. Um, I think the best example of this is a, a woman who came to a book festival I was at a couple of weeks ago and while I was in the green room before the event the organizers came in and said we've noticed that there's a woman here with her eight-year-old daughter and we know the sort of themes that you're discussing and we've seen some of the images that you're using and we just thought we should warn her that it might be a bit old um, a bit you know serious so I said that was fine if they wanted to, to give her a heads up. And they came back a few minutes later and said, no, she said she knows exactly what you're talking about. She wants to start a conversation with her daughter about it. She's brought her deliberately. And at the end, this little girl came up with her mum to get her book signed. And she put it down and said, I found this really useful because I got my first dick pic a year ago. And the mum just said, I didn't know how to help her with something that I wouldn't know how to deal with myself. And I've heard that a lot, a lot of parents who've said, this, is, this has helped me to get to grips with it before I know how to talk to, to her yeah. or to their sons as well. Yeah, because it's, it's bridging the gap, I guess, between the two. Mm. And um, we were talking earlier about this um, idea that um, we're the last generation who are digital natives kind of talking to a younger audience, but they will bring up other digital natives That's and right. the generational gap surely will get closer together. Yeah, we're in this really interesting moment at the moment where we've got parents who didn't grow up with the internet from a young age with children who do. And if you think about it, that will never happen again because by the time the next generation has children, they will have grown up with it. Of course, there'll be new things that are different, of course, as that always are, but it will never be quite the gulf in the way that it is now. So I think we need things that bridge that gap. We have to be opening up the lines of communication rather than closing them down. And sadly, so often at the moment, we are closing them down mm. when these things happen, turn it off 
off, switch it off. I didn't want to hear it. Don't talk to them. Don't give them ideas. You, you see schools where there have been cases of sexting, and rather than open up a conversation about it, the school desperately tries to sweep it under the carpet, often punishing the victim rather than the perpetrator and creating this real sense of shame and secrecy. And, of course, that's the last thing that you need around any difficult topic is to increase shame and secrecy. Exactly, because also with confidence, especially um, in, in young girls, um, you see that reflected in careers because, mm -hmm. I mean, there are so many statistics around the fact that, you know, um, when men are um, over, uh, underqualified for a job, they'll, they'll go for the interview and then um, women who are overqualified probably, you know, are still a bit um, scared mm -hmm. to go for it. So I wonder, um, I know there's lots in the book about kind of careers advice and things like that. I wondered if, um, do you take your own advice still on those chapters? <laughs> there's a lovely bit actually where Laura talks about... Um, overcoming kind of awkwardness and anxiety around actually about doing talks <laughs> so um you know that's quite that's quite topical for us yeah. both um but it's yeah it's an interesting one that I thought you know do you still have those moments where you think I need to reread my own book uh definitely in some areas but I've tried to be really honest about those areas in the book and I've tried never to write about anything as if I've mastered it if I haven't so I think one of the big ones for me on this was around body image. I didn't want to write a book that basically said, hey, like, you know, body image pressure is nonsense. And all you have to do is just realize that actually it doesn't matter. And it's just the world telling us that women's bodies are all that they are, but they're not. And then it's fine because that would just be so false and completely useless. Because actually, if I read that even now, I'd be like, oh, great. Well, that's impossible for me. So it, it doesn't help me in any way. So I try to be honest about what those places are and say this is a massive kind of clusterfuck, essentially, <laughs> that the world is chucking at you and it is impossible. And really, the answer is that we should stop it happening in the first place. This isn't a book that says you have to fix this, you have to resolve this in this way. But it does say, actually, while we're fighting to change all of this stuff happening that shouldn't be happening in the first place, here are some practical tools. And here's some stuff that I found quite helpful. And it's a process and it's an ongoing process. I talked to someone while I was writing the book about this and she said something that I thought was so helpful about body image, which was um, that developing a relationship with your body is like, um, it's like a relationship with another person, not necessarily falling in love, although it could be falling in love with someone, but also a best friend or a sister. It's a, it's a developing process. It's a long-term thing and sometimes you hate them and, and it's not always easy, but you, you you grow and you get there. Yeah. So I try to write about those things that I still struggle with from that perspective rather than that kind of glib. Because that was another thing that the book I really wanted to offset really was that kind of glib sort of false ringing thing of like teenage girls, if they just did this, this and this, then they would be fine. When actually that's not true in the world that we live in. I don't think it's about always teaching girls to jump higher and higher and higher to get over the sexist hurdles of life. Sometimes it does have to be about taking the hurdles out of the way. Yeah, and also the fact that um, the book is written in such a sisterly, friendly tone. The book is, is funny and it has lots of illustrations in it and um, it's witty. And I, and I wondered, um, has that been a natural uh, thing for you to find your voice in that way? I hope so. It was definitely something I really wanted to do because I don't get the opportunity to write in a light way very often. Um, the kind of topics I write about in the media tend to be so serious and, and, and sad and difficult. So I really, really wanted... But also I felt like there was a gap for addressing these topics in that way mm -hmm. because so often it is that sense of like... 
like sex education, this is what will happen to you when you finally let your guard down. It's your job to say no, sex is a bad, scary thing. And I don't think that's very helpful or empowering. And actually, I felt like maybe there was a way to talk about sexting, for example, or sexual pressure that didn't have to be a kind of textbook, scary, preachy manual. Yeah. So one of the things that I do in the book, I'm trying to look at what can you do if you receive an unsolicited dick pic and you actually want to be in that conversation, you don't want to turn off your phone or not have a Snapchat account or whatever it is. What ways around that are there? What ways of re-empowering a girl in that situation are there? And so we've got this whole collection of illustrations that you can snap a picture of and send straight back on your phone that say things like, um, congratulations, you have a penis, um, <laughs> surrounded with balloons. Or um, one of them is, oh, so cute, I love baby mice. Um, <laughs> Or one of them is like this really concerned one of like, uh, are you like, do you need to see a doctor? Um, um, oh, that's so good. That kind of thing. Um, but also it was partly just quite kind of like messing around about the way that I was thinking about these things and ways to look at them in a different light. So instead of saying the media is outrageous and actually movies are incredibly sexist and only 28% of speaking roles go to women. Women only direct 5% of the 250 biggest films every year. Women are three times more likely to take their clothes off in films than their male counterparts. Over 50% of teenage girls in all of the movies last year were sexualized on screen. Instead of like that, saying, imagine how hard it would be for movie makers if they had to name movies accurately. They wouldn't be nearly as catchy. It would be things like um, Jurassic Sausage Fest or um, Star Trek Into Gratuitous Nudity or um, 500 Days of How Unfair It Is That a Girl Isn't That Into You um, or Game of Th Oh Great, another rape scene that's not even in the original book um, or Armour Getting Really Tired of Being Left at Home While the Men Go Out and Do Stuff, that kind of thing. So it was partly just kind of messing around with how can you say the same things, but perhaps in a, in a more interesting, lighter way. <laughs> so true. And I wonder as well, um, you know, the confidence to kind of, um, well, A, speak up, and B, you know, take a lighter tone and feel like you can kind of go into these issues. Does that come from having a support network of other... Because, um, I mean, in, your, in one of the chapters, you kind of talk about... You bring in other voices of other women, yes. um, like Nimco Ali, Paris Lees, Bridget Christie. Do you feel like it's an exciting time where lots of people are doing very exciting things and you have this sort of web of women who are coming together and, yeah. and going for it? Definitely. I mean, I just think that's so important. It's so important for me because I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing without that sense of solidarity and support. It's so exciting to be working in this area where there is so much happening. There are so many incredible people doing the most incredible things, running amazing campaigns, fighting on so many different fronts at once, from FGM to sexism and racism in music videos, to sexism in the media, to political change on things like the Istanbul Convention. There's so much happening. It makes you feel so much excitement and hope and positivity, which I wanted to imbue the book with. But also, um, just at a kind of more personal level, it makes you feel like you're not alone. And also, like, there is, there is a way through this. Mm. And I wanted girls and young women, women at university and school, to get that sense as well, because I see the impact it has on them when they know that they're not alone. And the best example I have of this ever was a school where I got an email from some 12-year-old girls, and they said, will you come into our school? Because we noticed that um, the boys in our class were doing something strange. When we walked into the classroom, they were shouting out numbers, three numbers for each girl that walked in. And it took us a while to work out 
what was going on because it was like 7, 4, 10 when you walked in. And after a while of being quite embarrassed and ashamed about it, we talked to each other and gradually realized they were giving you a rating out of 10, but not just that, for your face, your breasts, and your bum separately, separate pieces. And they said, we looked online and we came across all this Tumblr stuff about girls doing stuff and we thought maybe you could come in and talk to the boys about sexism and maybe we could start some kind of society or do some kind of campaign. So I went into the school and when I went to give the talk I thought I wouldn't mention who'd asked me to go in because if it's an individual girl it can be really difficult often they don't want anyone to know it was them that asked you to come in. Sadly such is the hostility still that young women are facing in school around this stuff. But when I walked in, it was this, again, it was like a big assembly hall. And these girls were sitting like arm in arm on the front row. <laughs> and they'd had t-shirts made, um, which had a quote on the front inspired by Martin Luther King that said, I want to live in a world where I'm judged by the content of my character and not the pieces of my body. And we did the talk. And at the end, they had this pledge, this anti-sexual harassment pledge that they were getting all the boys to sign as they went out of the hall. And it was just this amazing moment of realizing when you know other people are doing stuff and when you know that you're not alone, the change it makes and the empowerment it gives you is just massive. And that's the sense I wanted to get across. And they gave me one of these T-shirts as well uh, to do the talk in. I put it on. And then it wasn't until I got home that night and I was getting ready for bed and took it off that I realized on the back it said, I am 10 out of 10. <laughs> Oh, I love that. Oh, uh, the book it ha totally has that um, to it. When you finish the book, you immediately, you just kind of want to join in if you're not already. Um, so, I mean, on that really positive note as well, I'd, I'd love to go to questions. I'm sure um, people have questions for Laura. Um, I don't know if the lights are going to dim slightly so I can see people. Um, we've got people up here as well that I can't forget. So, um, <laughs> shall we start with someone at the top? Just so I make sure I don't forget anyone up there. Yes, this one here. Fab. Hello. Um, I've bought and given away more copies of your book than, uh, than you can imagine because oh. I've given them away to people who need them. Thank you. Um, I have an 11-year-old son and a 13-year-old daughter. I think the, the, person, the people who really need to read your book um, are the boys. Mm -hmm. um, how do you encourage boys to read a book like this? Well, I think that what's really important is that we're having these conversations and really including all children and all young people is so important. I think that we have to set out in a way that really brings them into the conversation. So when I go and talk in schools, I really try and explain to them the ways in which this implicates and impacts on boys. And I don't pretend that it's gender neutral because I think that's not particularly helpful. I, we still talk about the structural ingrained elements that gender inequality does disproportionately impact women. But we also talk about low of stuff like the impact of the idea that boys have to be strong and guys don't cry and we talk about mental health and, and male mental health being a kind of massive problem area and I think that if they see it and they're introduced to this as let's look at the gender stereotypes in the world and let's look at sexual violence and let's look at all these issues as a whole and talk about how they impact us then they can find that more accessible than the way that they've often, sadly, come to the idea of feminism online through very aggressive men writing posts about how it's all man-hating and it's all about being you know, angry bitches and all of that stuff. So I think it's partly about the way we have the conversation, but we also have to have an opportunity to have that conversation, and that's why I think that having these things on the curriculum is just so hugely important. But I think the good news is that there are brilliant organisations doing exactly that. So there's 
there's things like Sexpression, which trains young people to go into schools and talk to children about these issues, the Great Initiative and Good Lad Workshops, which actively train guys in their 20s to go and talk to teenage boys in a way that is about them and how this impacts them from, from a male perspective. But there are also really fantastic books out there that are aimed at boys but really deal with these issues. Um, and one of the best I've read is called Being a Boy. It's by Juno Dawson, who's an amazing author. And it's great. It's, I would say it's a very feminist book, but it sort of tackles all of this stuff from, from that perspective. So I'd recommend that as well. Great question. Anyone? Yeah, we'll go, we'll go here. Thanks. Hi. Um, what's your belief about... Um, anti-feminist movements from women, so such as some people saying, oh, I'm not a feminist, I'm a humanist. Mm. I always think that that's fascinating because humanism's a different thing. <laughs> like, it's already a thing. It's another, it's another thing. Um, I think it stems from confusion about what we mean when we say feminism. Um, and it's always a follow-up question that I get. If I'm talking to people, especially if I'm talking to kids in schools and I'm talking about these issues and I say feminism means believing that everyone should be treated equally regardless of their sex. It means gender equality then you get this kind of really suspicious response, which often is, well, in that case, why isn't it called humanism or equalism? And I think at that point, you just have to say that we need to name a problem in order to solve a problem. It's not a trick. It doesn't mean women taking over the world. It doesn't mean trying to get above a level playing field, as it were. But you can recognize the impact these things have on men within a broader framework without it being contradictory of also recognizing that the current playing field is like this, that currently it is women who are disproportionately impacted, who disproportionately bear the brunt of sexual violence, who are structurally at a disadvantage economically, politically, socially, and that you have to have the fem bit of the word in there because in order to reach the level playing field, that is the reality of the issue that we're addressing. And in terms of when those movements come from, from other women, I think that the media loves it. The media flipping loves it when they can run an article about women hating other women and women against feminism. So I'm a little bit wary. I think that those things are blown out of proportion. I know that there are kind of Twitter things and a hashtag, but I don't think that actually that movement is anywhere near as multifaceted and has anywhere near the momentum of the feminist movement. So I think, um, I think we can kind of just um, logically talk about it and, and sort of engage with that and explain why. But I also don't think it's, it's the sort of huge thing that is sometimes purported to be by media that basically wants to see a cat fight. Thank you. Um, should we go here this, over the side? Yes, thank you. Hi. I know this is an issue that a lot of these girls won't be dealing with, but they will be in a few years of online dating. Mm -hmm. And how should we be responding to men who send us unsolicited graphic messages, etc., on a dating platform, not just social media? That's a great question. I think the answer to any question about how we should respond to any kind of online abuse or misogyny has to come from a starting point of doing what's right for you. Because you quite often see this really prescriptive, don't feed the trolls, um, just turn off, she shouldn't have done that, she brought it on herself. And it's just more of the same, like, why didn't she leave when he started hitting her? Why was she wearing a short skirt? Why did she lead him on? Why did she get so drunk? In a way, actually, the point is, we shouldn't be dealing with that crap. And however makes you feel good about dealing with it is fine. So we know that there are some women who find it helpful, for example, to screen grab those guys and, and to put it out there 
and to get the kind of support and solidarity back that, that they find helpful. We know that there are some people who find it helpful to send those um, unsolicited dick pics on to, um, to those guys' uh, mums, which has been really... For poor mums, I mean, that's kind of awful. Um, or, or, to, or to threaten to do so and say, like, you know, this is really funny because I happen to, like, have found your mum on Facebook and I just thought I'd pass on this message, you know, since you've... Especially when they're saying, like, oh, it's a compliment or I thought you'd like it. In that situation, I think that can be really helpful. Like, since this is so lovely, I thought I'd share it with your mum. You know, just that thing of, like, getting them to recognise, forcing them to recognise it. Um, but equally, I know people who actually feel that it's too much and the thing that makes them feel most empowered is to switch off, is to block and report and ignore and say, I'm not even going to dignify this with my headspace. And I think that the amazing thing is the diversity of responses that people choose. You've got this more widely as well. You've got, you know, someone like Stella Creasy being asked for a picture of her pussy and asking all of her followers to bombard the guy with pictures of kittens until he <laughs> submitted and, like, begged to be left alone. Um, I, uh, Helen Lewis tells this great story about a blogger who had these really abusive um, comments underneath her blog from a guy. And what she did was that she would publish his name and the date he posted and everything, published basically the comment, but changed the text before she published it to like, I just love this blog and I'm such a feminist. And, you know, that was how she dealt with it. So I think I'd say whatever feels right to you, um, I'd say there's a lot of possible techniques and responses in the book, in Girl Up, because this is a question that I wanted to answer, if you do want to engage in a way that hopefully makes them stop and think, but doesn't make you feel like you have to come up with an essay in response. But also, I hope and I think that we should be expecting more of online dating companies to actually protect their users from this kind of issue. And in fact, just this week, there's been a really good example of this from Bumble, which is one of these dating apps. And there was a really, really abusive instance of a guy being absolutely horrible to a woman on there. And they wrote him an open letter on their blog and banned him from using it and really took a stand and made it very clear, if you are this kind of person who wants to send these kinds of messages, this isn't the app for you. So I think that we can be expecting more there in the same way that I think we should be able to expect more from social media companies generally in actually valuing their female users and, and actually putting stuff in place to protect them from that kind of thing. That's so true. There's an app called um, Badoo, it's called, and yeah. um, they had a problem recently where um, people were being groomed on the app by people who yeah. they... It, it wasn't them who they were saying it was. So they've introduced this new tool where um, you have to do like a live sort of selfie to, to verify that it's actually you. Mm. And so I hope they're coming around to that, introducing new tools that will keep women safe. Yeah, I mean, I yeah. think it's so... Because you see these um, headlines that say after people have been meeting on Tinder and then there's been kind of assaults and stuff, and the headlines are, you know, women warned to stay indoors, women warned not to... Do not breathe. People. Do not leave your house. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah, that's what we do. Like, there's, when there's been a spate of kind of sexual assaults in an area and we still genuinely see headlines saying, you know, police have warned women not to walk alone. And I know that sometimes people say, well, that does kind of seem sensible, doesn't it, as a precaution... But actually, if you think about it, if you're really going to go to the point of saying that half the population should be going out of their way, out of their day, to make sure that they never go anywhere alone, the disruptiveness of that, in that situation, really, if we actually believe that that is a worthwhile thing to advocate, then why shouldn't we say men shouldn't be walking alone? Because one of these men is out there assaulting women, so let's make them all go out in pairs so that he can't do it. <laughs> actually, 
<laughs> exactly. Oh, should we have another question? Thank you. Hi. Um, I just wanted to touch on the idea of compulsory SRE in schools, if that's okay. I am 100% behind that movement. And um, in my own experience, uh, if you would even call it that, I mean, I had one hour of SRE in secondary school delivered by one middle-aged PE teacher in a pop-up classroom. But the reason behind that was because he was the only one willing to do it. And I think that in itself is a big issue. And I, I get it. I mean, if I think back to some of the troubles my teachers faced just teaching geography, let's say, to a class of teenagers, let alone speaking frankly about blowjobs and sexting and you know, God knows what else, I kind of wondered what your th thoughts were. Uh, you know, moving forward, let's say this is implemented and, and SRE does become compulsory in schools, how do we address the issue of finding the right sort of people to facilitate that within schools? Is it a case of delivering training to teachers, in which case are we going to have time implications? Is there going to be costs of, to that? Or is the answer bringing in external people, such as yourself with the workshops that you do, and is that something that is feasible? I think that's such a good question, and it's very much part of the campaign at the moment. So if anyone is interested in learning more about all of this, there's a website at srenow.org, which basically goes through what the campaign is, what we're asking for, how you can get involved. And what we really explain there is that we are not just asking for a silver bullet, simple top line, put it on the curriculum, make it compulsory, end of. What we're asking for is the government really to make this workable. And what that means is high-quality, supported SRE on specific topics for every child in every school. And clearly, what we make it really, really clear in our petition and in the asks that are being made to the government at the moment are that that will only work if it's supported by proper funding, by teacher training and support, and by a range of different provision options, so that if a school doesn't have a teacher who is trained and supported in that area and has all of the adequate up-to-date materials that they need they also have funding to turn to an external organization and there are big providers there's a big one called big talk education that goes into schools and talks about these things as well as some of the other groups that i've already mentioned so i think that it has to be about schools having that flexibility and that choice but without government funding and without really good quality teacher training you're right it won't work so that must be built into any package I think. And the other thing that we've really tried to put at the forefront of that campaign is what the End Violence Against Women Coalition describes as a whole school approach, which means that it isn't enough for every child to get one one hour lesson about respecting others and healthy relationships and sexual consent on a Tuesday if they walk down the corridor in the school on a Thursday and a boy lifts up a girl's skirt and gropes her and a teacher says, oh, it's just boys being boys and brushes it off. It has to be about actually making sure that there's training at some point for all teachers to deal with sexual harassment and violence in schools with a zero-tolerance approach and a top-down approach. And that means tackling sexual violence when it happens. It means tackling sexual harassment in the corridors and the playgrounds as well as the classroom. It means looking at wider things like school dress code, like whether the school curriculum only contains books or historians who happen to be white men. It means a much, much broader approach in order for this to actually have an impact. And I know that this might sound sort of... Um, over the top to talk about sexual violence in schools. I'm really aware when I use that term that people kind of go, 
what do you mean? But actually, the Women in Equality Select Committee report that was recently released about sexual harassment and violence in schools just a few weeks ago, one of the statistics included in it is a freedom of information request that was made to police forces across the country, and it revealed that 5,500 sexual offences, including 600 rapes, have been reported to police as having occurred in a UK school over the last three years. Now, if you divide that down and you work out the average length of the school term, that's almost exactly one rape per school day being reported as occurring inside a UK school. And we all know that the reporting rate for rape is 15%. We know that at university that drops to 10%, so we can assume that perhaps there's a similar correlation at school. This is really a massive problem, and it won't be solved, as you say, by just ticking a box on a curriculum. It won't even be solved by funding and teacher training. It has to be a whole school approach, looking at safeguarding guidelines. It has to be much wider. Fantastic question. We'll go, we'll go down this corner, yeah. Hi, I was just wondering what your opinions are single-sex education versus co-ed education were because having gone to Chatham Ladies College for the past six years I find although you get definitely get given this empowerment it's like I'm a woman I can do whatever I want the fact that you aren't exposed to boys at all basically and when you are it's in a dark room where you can't talk with <laughs> music blaring in your ears definitely gives you the wrong picture of what men are really like and it's not realistic. <laughs> so good question. I was wondering what your opinions were on that. I think it's a really, I think it's a really interesting question, and I, I'm, I don't feel completely qualified to answer it because I think in order to really give you a robust answer, you'd need to do some research. But what I do know is that people often expect me to say that single-sex education is either like a panacea or a kind of terrible, terrible thing. I think people think that when I go into schools, I'll see this huge difference in response from single-sex schools and mixed schools. And they also often suggest that the same thing might happen between private schools and state schools or that kind of thing. What I've found in my experience, and again, you know, this isn't scientific, this is just my personal experience, but it has been that it is so varied and that actually the problem tends to persist quite universally across all the schools I go into, regardless of these different factors, that I see the same issues around body image and rape myths and misconceptions at single-sex schools as I do at mixed schools, that issues about harassment and objectification of women don't get just avoided by single-sex education because, of course, these things are coming in from all around us and the world around us as well. I'm sure that there's something in what you're saying about the need to be more exposed. And I think single-sex schools where they do more kind of stuff that is with jointly with, with other single-sex schools is probably a really good way forward to try and combat that. But I don't have a clear-cut answer for you on, like, this good, this bad. And in fact, what's really interesting to me is that there is one differentiator that makes an enormous difference in terms of the response that I get from young people in schools. But it's not the type of school, it's not whether it's state school or private school or a faith school or an academy or single sex, it's the age of the kids I'm talking to. If you talk to children who are seven or eight years old about this stuff, they are fascinated and engaged. And they are very, they've got gender stereotypes, it's not that they're kind of pure and untouched by it, sadly, if only. 
but they're really interested, and the boys and girls pretty much react the same, and they talk to each other about it, and they want to know, well, that's so weird, like, why is it? Like, why aren't there any women in power? Like, that's odd, like, what could that be? And it's really lovely and lively and, and, and interested. And then you reach about 14 or 15, and it's like a switch goes on, and you can really feel the influence of, of music and uh, music videos and online porn and stuff that they've read online, and you start hearing she was asking for it, and rape is a compliment, really, and it's not rape if she enjoys it, and these kinds of things. And at that point, the girls get very, very quiet indeed and don't feel able to talk about these things in front of the boys, and there is this, it is so hard to start there to go in and talk about this when they've already heard that feminists are bitches who hate men and this is all anti-men it's so difficult it's too late basically and all of the stuff is ingrained and then actually when you get to university age and you're talking to young people who are in their late teens and early 20s it kind of comes back around again and there's actually much more of a kind of willingness to engage but for me, the biggest thing about education is what age do we start having these conversations? And there's no reason we can't do it young. People say, don't give them ideas. Oh, my God, you're going to be talking to five-year-olds about online porn. Of course you're not. But actually, you would teach a five-year-old you don't hit other children. So why can't we teach them in a similarly age-appropriate way? This is your body, and, and actually it's your choice what happens with your body, and we respect other people's bodies. Something that simple, of course we can start it from a young age. Mm. I've just seen we've hit the time. I don't know if we're allowed one extra question. Am I allowed the nod if we are allowed another question? Really, really quick. This, yes. this lady over here had her hand up. You, yes, yes. Yeah, is it okay to be quick? <laughs> just um, younger girls and boys of seven or eight seem really engaged and mm. interested in this because I would think that that would be hopeful for the future going forward in terms of the social media community. <laughs> But also, a lot of this echoes to me of stories my mother would tell me, who was a child of the 50s, and mm -hmm. the difficulties her parents had of engaging with her in sex and relationships. And I yeah. think, for me as a parent, although my children are very young, you know, there's, the, there's a very large gap there, again, because I don't have the, feel that I don't have the tools or the language to express what's happening out there. Yeah, I think that's just such a common feeling. And I think actually being at the point where you recognise that and you're thinking about that is, is already a really good position to be in because you're already aware of it and looking for ways to bridge the gap. And that is partly exactly why I wrote Girl Up because I wanted to give a tool that was really concrete that kind of laid out on the line some of the realities and would open up the opportunity for some of those conversations in a really practical way. Um, but, but also it is empowering to hear these young people talking about these things in the way that they are and, and just realising how strong they are and how many ideas they have and how ready they are to share the ways that they're standing up and fighting back. And that's just true generally, just that wonderful sense of positivity and, and you know, the idea that things are going to be okay. And sometimes it's the silliest thing. I got it the other day from someone who shared a story that she was walking down the street. Sorry, I'll be really quick. This is the last thing. She was walking down the street and there was a man working up on a roof and he started uh, shouting about her breasts. And she stopped and said, why would you do that? How would you feel if someone was shouting about your body as you were walking down the street? It's horrible. Please don't do that to women. And he just laughed at, and started shouting much worse abuse. So she shrugged and took down his ladder and left him up there. <laughs> I love that. Thank you so much, everyone. Um, please 
get a copy of Laura's book. It's amazing. She's going to be signing copies just um, outside. So um, if you have a question or you want um, her to sign a copy, do go. And how wonderful is Laura Bates, everyone? Thank you so much for coming. <laughs> Thank you. If you liked this episode, please remember to leave a review or a rating on iTunes. It would mean so much to me. Also, um, tweet me. I'd love to hear your feedback. So thanks so much again for listening and make sure you tune in next week.